Well, I never know whether we should be praying for the preacher or those who've got to listen to him. I, I wonder whether we've got that the right way around sometimes. Good morning. Oh, I see. It's going to be like that, is it? Okay, I can work on that. Um, look, I tell you what, before I get started, uh, let's just do that thing where you just turn around and in a COVID secure manner, just say hello to the people that you are sitting behind or around. Just a quick hello in a COVID secure manner. Brilliant. The world is going crazy, but at least Strictly Come Dancing's back on our screens. Which is, I can see, a, a joy for, for some of you and uh, utter misery for some of us. But anyway, just give it away there. All right. So, um, this morning we're going to look at this story of... Jesus and Jairus's daughter, his 12-year-old daughter, and I'm sure it's a familiar story to you, but I want to dig in, just, I'm not going to take too long, I promise, just for a few minutes, because I think this story is really helpful for us, where we are right now, not just as individuals, but as a church. I was thinking over the last week uh, about what really makes a church sort of grow and thrive? You know, what, what is it that helps a church really begin to live and grow in number and kind of have something about it where God's moving? What is the secret to that? And we know a little bit about that because some really faithful Christians actually researched this. The Church of England has published all kinds of research about this. And we know that the more missional a church is, the more life it has. We know that mission is oxygen for a church. And I, I don't just mean that you then literally grow, which hopefully you do if you're, if you're missional. Uh, it means actually that the whole focus of the church, the more outward it becomes, the more churches seem to flourish and grow. And in a way, what happens, and again, unfortunately, the research shows this, is that churches that are shrinking often do the very opposite. As you get smaller, actually it becomes harder to become missional because sort of 80% of your energy is spent just making the thing tick over, getting services running, the volunteers are smaller. So actually, weirdly, at the time you need to be missional to turn it around, if you're not careful, you end up living a much more inward life just focused on yourselves. And that's a real challenge. Um, if you're a fan of various David Attenborough documentaries, and who wouldn't be, you might have uh, seen at some point a whale shark. By the way, I'm not an expert on whale shark. I can just read a few lines of it on Google. But um, the thing about a whale shark is it can never stop swimming. It cannot be still. Because whale sharks, and there are some other species of shark as well who are in the same boat. And I'm about to, by the way, I'm about to compare the church to a shark. I'm not sure how this is going to work, but go with me on this. But basically, if a whale, because the way a whale shark collects oxygen from the water, it's actually the, the experience of the water running over its gills that extracts the oxygen. Those, some of you 
bear with me on this, and my, te my, my technical awareness is limited, but um, my biological awareness is limited, but, but it cannot, if it stops, it dies. And I, I actually think that's a metaphor for us as a, as a group of Christians. If we stop doing mission, we die. If we're not sharing as a church, if we're not getting out of our, our own world, then actually we're, we're entering a cycle that takes us down and further and further inward. And I say that about myself, okay? So I'm, I am the first recipient of this. This is, this is not easy to say, because I think we do, we do lead lives that can become very small. They're about us and our family and the people around us that we love. And it's, it's easy to forget that within 60 seconds of where we're walking, of where we're sitting this morning, there are so many different kinds of needs, aren't there? People struggling, often hidden, not just poverty, loneliness, mental health, all the things that are broken in our world. And it's easy to live a life that sort of knows they're out there, but actually is consumed with who we are. So this story in Mark 5, for me, is a bit of a kick back out. And this is why I want to talk to you about it very briefly this morning. Because I think this story helps us address that bit within us that wants to go inward as a church and, and as individuals. So I'm going to have a quick look at that. And I emphasize quick because I can see the look in your eyes. So let's have a look together. The first thing... I want you to notice about this amazing moment in Jesus's ministry is the part that Jairus plays the father. He's actually critical to this story because his daughter is dying and he's obviously tried already whatever he can to deal with that. But he decides to do something about it. He goes to Jesus. So without Jairus actually doing anything, this story is just another statistic of a child death in first century Palestine. This is that, that's, that's the story that was about to take place. But it's Jairus who changes it. Jairus says, I am going to do something about this. This is not just going to happen. And you say, well, of course he did that. He's her father. He loves her. But that's kind of the point. At the start of this story is someone who loves enough to do something about it. And that's really the beginning of mission, of any kind of mission. You actually have to love the world you're in enough to do something about it. You might be aware of it. You might think it's a shame that it's there. But until you love enough, to do something about it, the story can't get started. The mission can't happen. So this all starts because Jairus goes and does something. And by the way, he can't fix it. He, he, he doesn't know all the answers. He can't, if, he'd have, if he could fix his daughter's illness, he would have done that. So it's not like he knows how it's all going to work out. But he just knows he has to do something about it. And not only that... There's a cost that's attached to this. We're given a bit of information here that I think is really helpful at the start of the story. Jairus is one of the synagogue leaders. So he's part of the establishment. And remember, already in Jesus' ministry, the establishment are against Jesus. 
They are out to get him. He is the rebel. They are the establishment. And Jairus represents that in the town or the village or wherever it was where he would be as the synagogue leader. He was the guy with the biggest house, the most important part of the of the way the society was run. And by going to Jesus, as it says, he kind of falls before Jesus, the rebel that he on one level is trying to get rid of, and he comes to Jesus. He's putting everything on the line. We don't actually know what happens to Jairus at the end of this, but it's possible that he lose. He could even have lost his role over this. To go to Jesus in the midst of all of this as the synagogue leader, and uh, and want to uh, um, and want to appeal to Jesus is kind of saying death to all of his status and everything about him. And that's, that's just, I just think that's worth noticing because there is a cost to mission. There is a cost to loving. You know, it, it, and mission is messy and complicated and difficult. And it's about brokenness, the brokenness in all of us and the brokenness in our world. And so it's not neat and tidy. Things get, you know, I know this from being involved in youth ministry, if you're involved in youth ministry and if you reach out, as some of you involved in the church over the years here will know, it's messy. You know, literally messy. Someone comes in and says, you won't believe it. They've spilt coke on the Jones Memorial carpet. You know, remember the Jones Memorial carpet that was in honor of the Jones and it's there and, and you know, everyone thinks, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? That, that's sort of part and parcel of what mission is about. Things are literally messy, but they're messy and complicated. By the way, I would happily replace the Jones Memorial carpet multiple times if it meant that we were reaching out and engaging. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't it be great if we said, do you know, there's terrible news, and I'm aware Steve and others spend their lives keeping this church together, so I'm not suggesting that we just allow this to happen. But, you know, wouldn't it be great if we said, look, we've got a terrible problem. The church has been so used over the last six months, we're going to have to replace a whole bunch of things. The chairs are broken, the carpet needs replaced. Wouldn't that be fantastic? We'd celebrate. We? I mean, I'm not saying we should allow teenagers... You look way too behaved as teenagers, by the way, uh, to kind of roam around. Actually, it's the adults that are probably the problem. But, but wouldn't it be fantastic if mission was so messy that every PCC we had to say, God, we, we, we've worn the carpet out again. That, I'm, I'm so glad the Jones aren't here to see it. It's not the carpet they thought it was. We've had to replace it. But mission is messy. So this, this story starts with a father who loves and he's, he's prepared to put his whole job, his status in the, in the town as the synagogue leader. He puts all of that on the line to get something done. And I, I just think that's a really powerful part. So, so he comes to Jesus and Jesus agrees to go with him. And by the way, we leapt over in this story because Mark puts two stories together and they are amazing stories and they're actually sort of meant to be together but we don't have time to get into it. There's a second story in the middle of this about an amazing woman of faith. You know that story too? Who reaches out and touches Jesus' cloak. And so in the reading we've kind of slipped over that. So Jesus goes to Jairus's house. He agrees to go with Jairus, but he's slightly distracted on the way. Something else happens. And at the end of that, we join the story again. And if you remember, 
some people come to Jesus and they basically say, where is it? Let me find it. Uh, Verse 35, while Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? I call these guys the naysayers because there's always a bunch of people. When you're doing mission, when you're starting something and it's messy, there's always a bunch of people who are there to say, why bother? And here they are right now. They're basically, Jesus, listen, don't trouble yourself. It's not going to work. There's no point in going any further. Let's call the whole thing off. We're out of it. There's always people around. The moment you step out, because stepping out is complicated and takes resources and energy, there's always people around who say, don't bother. We do, we find that in work with young people. There are people who say, you know, it's just not, young people will never come into the church. They'll never, it's not even worth trying. They've always got a reason why. But but remember what, what, um, what happens here. They, they bring, actually, what they're doing is they've brought news, but they've added their own opinion. Because when you look at it, they, their, their news is, your daughter is dead. They're bringing news to Jesus, okay? And this is important news. So they're coming from the house to say, your daughter is dead. So that's fine. But notice what they do is they add their view onto the back of it. Your daughter is dead, and why bother the teacher anymore? So it's like they, they're doing more than their job, which is why I'm calling them the, the naysayers. And they're basically saying to Jesus, forget it, don't worry. By the way, their choice of words are really important here. Notice what they say. Why bother the teacher anymore? You notice anything about how they've chosen because I, I think this is absolutely how they're slanting it. Why bother the teacher anymore? Have you noticed? What do they describe Jesus as? The teacher. But of course, we already know, in Mark as well, that Jesus is someone who raises people from the dead. He's a miracle worker, but they don't call him that. It doesn't sound quite as convincing, does it, when you say, your daughter is dead, Why bother the miracle worker who raises people from the dead anymore? You're like, oh, he sounds like somebody we should bother at this point. He sounds ideal for this. Let's bother him. But no, what they do is they kind of, they kind of restrict, they put Jesus in a teacher box. And I think that's a little point there because when you, if you're in the naysayer camp, It's not just about the difficulty of mission, which, by the way, is true. It is difficult. There's something about saying it's not going to work that diminishes and makes Jesus smaller. And we are are not just a kind of community project, are we? We actually believe that God is at work, that Jesus is able to change lives. So Jesus is a teacher, but he's also the miracle worker, the one who can overcome depression and loneliness and poverty and brokenness and injustice. So Jesus here is made small. And I think often when we're in mission, you've got to watch the people who want to somehow make Jesus smaller than he is. 
And that seems to me really important. And so Jesus carries on. A couple more points out of this story. I hope you're finding this helpful. So Jesus uh, arrives at the house. And of course there's wailing and, and already people are, are, uh, are incredibly uh, distressed because this, this, this little 12-year-old has died. And then in verse 39... You get this statement, and this, this is the moment in this story, okay? This is the verse. If there's something I want you to take away this morning, it's this. Jesus says, while this commotion and wailing, the child is not dead, but asleep. That's the moment. Just let that, let that phrase hit you for a moment. The child is not dead, but asleep. What's going on here? Jesus is not saying he literally believes this teenager has gone to sleep. He's not coming to say, don't worry. Uh, you know, it's been a terrible mistake. You thought she was dead. Actually, she's asleep. No, he knows she's dead. He understands that she's dead. But somehow he's speaking of a different alternative reality. It's as though he's saying, I understand that she is dead. But there's this thing coming called the kingdom of God. And in the kingdom of God, she is coming to life. She's going to wake up. So in the kingdom, she's asleep. In the world, she's dead. But in the kingdom, she's, uh, she's coming back to life. She's asleep. In a sense, these few words, it's like the gospel boiled down. into This is it, isn't it? This is what we believe about our lives, about this church, about our community, as we look out and we see all of the systemic injustice and the mess and the brokenness and the poverty and the loneliness and all the other stuff of life, we see beyond that and we see what the kingdom can do to change. When you see a broken young person Someone who's uh, at odds with the police and the world. And yes, at one level, that's who they are. But at another level, the kingdom, Jesus says, no, you are, you are something different. There is something in you that is asleep. That only the kingdom, only Jesus can bring back to life. I think of my friend Judy Dixon, who sadly died of cancer uh, a few years ago. She was one of the team that was leading a church just on the other side of Luton. And uh, on the street of the church, there was a pub. And uh, in the middle of uh, sort of normal life, there was suddenly notice that the pub was going to be turned into a pole dancing strip club called Deja Vu. Some of you may remember walking by this. I'm not suggesting you frequented the Deja Vu <laughs> pole dance. You don't look like that crowd. But, um, but uh, so there was a huge sort of, crazy argument about what was going on and there was planning thing anyway it happened and there's a sort of there's a version of christianity which would have had us all down there kind of with placards ready to sort of shout at anyone going through the door there's a sort of version of christian faith that could do that but judy was different you know what she did she went down and she she had coffee multiple times with the guy who was running it and she became his friend because she saw in him, not who he was, but who God had made him to be. And she hung out with him. And in fact, he ended 
brilliantly, sponsoring a church outing. He, out of the taking, do theologically with this what you like, but she persuaded the Deja Vu pole dancing and strip club to sponsor an elderly people's trip to Clacton. Uh, and yeah, I don't know quite what to make of that. But it, the, what inspired me about her and what I miss about her was that there was something of the kingdom as she saw people. She saw who they are. She understood who they are. It wasn't like denial of the reality of brokenness. But she always saw more. And that's what's happening here. Jesus is saying, look, I understand that this little girl is dead, but she's not dead in the kingdom. She's sleeping. And the kingdom overcomes even death. Death is nothing before the kingdom. So at the heart of our mission, and this is why we should be, I guess, engaged with it and excited about it, is our belief that we, it's not that we don't acknowledge the brokenness around us and the mess and the craziness, even in Bushmead. But we see how God sees it can be. We see the kingdom coming in people, in communities. That's this moment. And it's a really powerful one. And so Jesus goes in, last thing, very quickly. Um, because this is, a, I, this is, for me, a challenging kick to think differently about my life. But I just don't want to miss the last bit. So Jesus goes in. And uh, in, uh, he, he throws everyone else out. In come the child's father and mother uh, and the disciples, the three disciples. And he takes this, the dead body of this little girl by the hand. And he says to her, Talitha Koum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. And I just want you to kind of catch what's going on here because it's outrageous. I, I don't know whether you were around in August when I was speaking on the Good Samaritan Hopefully you've got over that experience by now. Uh, But do you remember, if you were, that we talked about how for any rabbi or teacher or priest of the time, there were a huge number of rules around your cleanliness. And one of them, probably the highest order, was that you should not touch or even go near a dead body. It's why the the priest circles way away from from even the, the body of the man lying in the road. Because if you did, if you touched a dead body as a rabbi or teacher, you made yourself unclean. And at that point, you had to go back to Jerusalem, if you're a priest. Do you remember this? You have to do a week of ceremonies. You had to get a a special heifer and sacrifice it. And you had to be at a particular wall all week and say certain prayers. It's a huge deal. So you did not touch dead bodies. This is Jesus, the rebel. What's the first thing Jesus does when he gets in front of the dead body? He grabs her by the hand. I love that moment. This is rebel Jesus saying, you know what? I'm going to hold you. And there's something here. What I take from this is I think, again, there's a bit of the church sometimes that thinks being holy is somehow to draw back from the world. That's how we're going to stay pure. We'll we'll separate ourselves away. So all of that nasty stuff can't get to us. What this story, what this moment tells me is that Jesus sees holiness in the opposite way. It's actually engaging with the world, holding the world, touching the world. That's where we find who God is and we are purified and made whole. It's that phrase, in the world but not of the world, isn't it? And do you remember, you know that kind of phrase? 
Uh, the trouble is with those who quote that is they sort of forget the first bit. Say so we should not be of the world. Yes, but you should be in it also. And that doesn't just mean literally, physically. It means in the world. And here's Jesus engaged, holding. It's like everyone else would have been shocked and horrified. But he holds her. How do we become holy? How do we find more of God? How do our lives get transformed? It's out there. It's not in here. And somehow this story is telling us that. And now there's this moment here where this little girl suddenly comes back to life. I mean, Mark just writes this as though, you know, this is an ordinary everyday thing. I love the fact at the end that, um, that they, it says, at this they were completely astonished. You think? Yeah. I think that is probably an underplay. But I like, here's Jesus, by the way. This is why I know Jesus understands youth ministry. What's the first thing that he introduces with a 12-year-old? He says, brilliant, you're back to life. Let's have pizza. Uh, first thing is, let's have some food. He understands youth ministry. Uh, and so pizza is cool. Whatever was the equivalent of Domino's. Sorry, that's now slightly going off piece to the literal version here in Scripture. But you get the idea. So this story... I guess what I'm trying to say briefly this morning is I think what happens in this story is a really helpful challenge for us as individuals and as a church here at Christ Church. Think, how do we thrive going forward? How do we grow going forward? How do we find what God wants for us as a church? We do not find it just sitting in these walls. It is only as we go out in mission, I believe, that we discover what it really means to be the people of God. And it is broken and it is messy, but it is a world that brings about the kingdom of God. She's not dead, she's sleeping. That is our mantra for people we meet, for the situations we're engaging with. There's a kingdom view, there's an alternative reality to what is before me. So it's broken, it's complicated, it's messy. But this is what Jesus is teaching us and telling us to do. And where that lands with me, just to finish, is that that challenges my innate laziness and selfishness. It challenges the idea that my life should basically be just about me, my family, the people I care about. You know, that's if you're not careful, that becomes your life. But for Christians, we're called beyond that. I'm not saying don't love your family. You have to love them. They're your family. Uh, But I am saying that actually this story challenges us to think beyond that and to to go places as a church that some might say, don't bother, it's not going to work. But we go with the Spirit of God. Shall we pray together and then uh, we'll continue with our service. So just for a moment, let's be quiet before the Lord. And I wonder, I wonder what this story means to you. I wonder where the Spirit is asking you to see this story. Is it Jairus? Is it that first prick of conscience to say, have I noticed, do I even care enough about those around me that are broken? Is it to challenge the part of us that maybe dominates, that sees why things can't work before you think that they can? Is that where the Spirit is challenging us? 
Do we just simply need to reconnect with the transforming reality and power of the kingdom to remind ourselves that we're not a bunch of do-gooders. We're bringing the kingdom, the supernatural presence of God to our community. Or maybe it's that moment as this little girl comes to life where Jesus reaches out. And so we're being challenged not to find our holiness in moments here together, but to also find it as we go out and connect. So Spirit of God, we pray that somehow you will take this story and let it resonate with power in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.